Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Pride, Two Under, Zexio, Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, Making the Game More Fun, Bionic Gloves, and the McLemore Club. Experience life above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and I'm both extremely excited about tonight's show, and it's the week of my annual buddies trip. So I got a lot of positive vibes pumping through my veins right now. We're headed up to the Macklemore in just a couple of days. The days leading up to this trip have seemed to move like at a snail's pace, but it's finally the trip Eve Eve. So it's almost time. Come on Thursday. In the meantime, I've got three outstanding guests that I can't wait to share with you tonight. First up is going to be 1989 Open champion Mark Kalkovecchia. I'll talk to Mark about his thoughts on Phil's big win at the PGA. And is it an anomaly or is it the start of 50-plus-year-old guys winning majors on a more regular basis? We'll also talk about player rivalries. We'll talk about the Ryder Cup and the gamesmanship that went on during the 1989 and 1991 Ryder Cups. You heard Chip Beck talked about it last week. I want to get Mark's perspective on it this week. He'll join me in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a visit from one of the all-time great players on the LPGA Tour, and that's Jane Blaylock. Jane won 27 times out on the LPGA Tour, plus four times on the Japanese Tour. I'll talk with her about some of those victories, specifically the times she beat legends like Carol Mann, Kathy Whitworth, and Judy Rankins. We'll also talk about the impact that Dinah Shore had on the LPGA Tour back in the 1970s, and Jane's impact in starting the LPGA Legends Tour, who you know we are partners with. So looking forward to having her as part of the show tonight. She'll join me about 25 minutes from now. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a visit from one of the top instructors in the history of the game, Jim McClain. I'm going to talk to Jim about his college playing days at the University of Houston. He got to play alongside so many great players like John Mahaffey, Bruce Litsky, Bobby Watkins, Bill Rogers, and Tom Jenkins. We'll also talk about the legends that he has coached over the years, which include our good friends Gary Player, Jane Geddes, and Hal Sutton. Plus, we'll talk about the 400-plus teachers that have become certified through his schools. Jim will be here about 45 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Teen. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our good friends over at the McLemore. Again, my buddies and I are headed up there for our annual golf trip in a couple of days. I'm so excited to play the course and see the other wonderful amenities that they have up there. The McLemore is a beautiful community resort and golf course, just 35 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, up on Lookout Mountain. Folks, go online to themaclemore.com to see how spectacular the place is. Their new clubhouse and bar are open. The Creek is a great place to have dinner and drinks with scenic views looking out from Lookout Mountain. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones, 
And our friend and PGA Tour caddy, Kip Henley, said outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. And Golf Digest agreed, oh, by the way, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. See why they're all saying that by checking out the course and the resort online at themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade and their TP5 and TP5X golf balls. High draw? Check. Low fade? Check. Bump and run? Out of the sand or flop shot? Guess what? Check, check, and check. No matter what shot you need to pull off, there's one ball that's better than them all, and that is the TP5 and TP5X from TaylorMade. With a newly redesigned dimple pattern that decreases drag and increases lift, it's the number one ball in golf no matter the shot. So whether you need to hit it high over the trees, under or even through them, hit TP5 or TP5X, the one ball designed to handle it all. Check them out online by going to tailormadegolf.com for more information. All right, now next on the tee with me is 1989 Open champion Mark Kalkavecchia. Let me remind you about Mark's background. He's from Laurel, Nebraska. His family moved down to West Palm Beach, Florida when he was 13. He won the Florida High School Golf Championship in 1977, played his college golf at the University of Florida from 1978 to 1980. He was named All-SEC in 1979. That season, Mark won the Furman Invitational. He turned pro in 1981, got his first win on tour at the 1986 Southwest Golf Classic. Mark has one of the lowest scoring rounds to par in PGA Tour history. He finished 28 under, a four-round total of 256 at the 2001 Waste Management Open, which featured a second-round 60. At the 2009 Canadian Open, he set a record by making nine consecutive birdies during his second round. In all, Mark won 13 times out on tour, including the 1989 Open Championship at Royal Troon in a playoff over Greg Norman and Wayne Grady. He's won four times out on the Champions Tour. Over the course of his career, he has 193 top 10 finishes, 351 top 25s. He's a great follow on Twitter, oh, by the way, at Mark Kalk, and I'm thrilled to have him back with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me, and thanks, uh, thanks for the rundown there. I didn't, I didn't know I had that many, uh, that many good accomplishments. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly did, my friend. Mark, I know it's been a, a kind of a challenging last 12 months health-wise for you. Updates. How you doing? Yeah, it, it has been uh, kind of rugged, uh, really starting in September when I, uh, when I got sick with COVID and it was, uh, it was bad. I had a pretty bad case of it. And then, uh, I got over that. Uh, I was pretty weak, had some back spasms, blah, blah, blah. Decided to, uh, finally had enough of my backache and, uh, decided to have my L4, L5 fused in, uh, early January. And, uh, that's been a lot harder than I thought it would be to, uh, get over that as well. So, uh, but I'm on the mend. I'm, I'm feeling much better. And actually, uh, I think I can see the light at the end of the tunnel and hopefully, uh, get back to playing some golf, uh, by August. So do you think we're going to see you out on the Champions Tour perhaps late this year? I, I sure hope so. Uh, I, I'll tell you what, I'm tired of watching watching golf on TV. Uh, I'm tired of watching <laughs> TV, period, actually. Uh, I ran out of Netflix shows, and, you know, it, uh, when you can't do much, uh, I, I take the dogs for a lot of walks and uh, uh, and just hang out. And uh, my physical therapist is doing a great job with me. Uh, so my, my belly's actually getting stronger. It doesn't look much smaller, but, 
my abs are getting stronger and my core. Uh, so, you know, we're trying to do everything we can to strengthen the back and, uh, you know, get back to uh, making some swings. Mark, I want to get your thoughts on a couple of things that are topical on, out on the PGA Tour, starting with Bill's big win at the PGA Championship. What did you think about what you saw from him? Oh, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, you know, everybody kind of, you know, Phil's Phil. That's just the easiest way to put it. And to to show you how cool it was, I mean, guys that you would normally think wouldn't hang around to congratulate him or even tweet something or do whatever, all, all just really gave him, uh, you know, 100% credit because uh, it was such a cool win. Uh, look, he's 50. Well, he's going to be 51 next month or in a few weeks. And uh, that's just an incredible incredible accomplishment in my opinion and I, and I know I was rooting for him and I think uh, most everybody else was too watching on TV so it was uh, he, you know he played great he really only hit one one super crooked one uh, uh, on the weekend uh, when he hooked that two wood or whatever it was under the water on 13 but uh, man he, he played great and uh, that was cool to see Mark, as you sort of alluded to a moment ago with your with your own routine, more focused on health nowadays and eating right and exercise. We obviously see Phil in in uh, much better condition, much better shape, I should say, uh, than we've seen him in years past. And you know, when I think about guys being able to compete at you know fifty to your point fifty one almost now for Phil. I mean, I remember back when when Mr. Palmer was talking about Arnold or about Jack Nicklaus winning the eighty six Masters. And said, you know, hey, I don't see a reason why Jack couldn't win it at 46. And I really don't see why guys couldn't win at 56. You just got to get it together one time. What, what are your thoughts now with the, with the greater focus on, you know, eating right and taking care of your body? Could this be a, a bigger trend as we start to see guys in the, you know, generation, you know, after Phil, the, you know, the Rory generation start to get up to that 50 age range? Could we see more guys in their 50s win majors on a more routine basis? I actually think we could. Um, you know, what Phil did was certainly inspirational to, to a lot of us, just like what Bernhard Langer is doing at 63 is, is pretty inspirational to us out on the Champions Tour. Uh, but yeah, uh, and the other main thing is, you know, we'll, when Rory turns 50 and, uh, you know, all these guys that are in their early 30s now, you know, 20 years down the road, will they still have the motivation uh, to, to play the Champions Tour? Uh, because, you know, they've, they've got more money than they know what to do with. And, you know, there's not really that much motivation, but, you know, Phil's kept that up. Uh, you know, he's competed with the young guys, uh, and he, and he, you know, he, he looks as good as he's ever looked. I mean, he hasn't aged at all. He's hit it as far as he's ever hit it. As far, you know, pretty much what I can tell. So, uh, you know, what he's doing is it, it's really, uh, really cool to see and, and, and definitely gives guys in their, you know, mid to late forties, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of hope. There's no doubt. Let's talk about um, what we saw this past weekend with John Rahm. An unfortunate situation with him testing positive and finding out I mean, right there next to the green on Saturday, which was which was horrible in and of itself. I felt so badly for him to to have to get that news right on the heels of knowing he's got a six stroke lead and and heading into the final round, um, not getting vaccinated, 
having that situation cost them nearly $1.7 million, if you just want to talk from a dollar's perspective, and then obviously being able to win uh, back-to-back Memorial. So your thoughts on, on what's happened with John Rahm? Yeah, I thought it was uh it was it was a, sh- a shame. I mean, I'm sure everybody felt sorry for him and, and me included. Uh you know, the tournament was over, he was going to win. He was playing so good. But not only from a, a monetary standpoint, but you know, losing all that money uh that he had WD from uh you know, there's there's a couple different thoughts. Uh you know, why hasn't he gotten vaccinated? Uh and I I, I said I did see another tweet where I said there's going to be like a, a lineup of PGA Tour players heading to the doctor on Monday, uh, <laughs> you know, because you don't want you don't, you don't want that to happen to you. It, it's just uh, it was it was really sad, and I I felt terrible for him. But uh, in the end, you know, I mean, you know, whether you get vaccinated or not, of course, I've had both my shots. I'd take another one tomorrow if there was a third vaccination. It's just I think it's stupid not to, uh, in my opinion. Uh, other people will disagree with that, but that's fine. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, the whole, the whole thing was a shame. I, I think they should have or could have handled it a little bit better. There's a few things they could have done. Maybe, you know, wh- why not let him play by himself, uh, behind the, the other two guys in front of him by himself in the last single match, right? Let him play. You know, his caddy is already right next to him anyway. So, and just make sure nobody gets anywhere near him. And, uh, you know, let him win the tournament, give him the trophy, you know, from 15 feet away and say, yeah, thanks. See ya. Uh, congrats. And, and then, and then let him do his, uh, quarantine or whatever he's going to do. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a tough, uh, tough deal for him for sure. Mark, I want to get your thoughts and kind of just going back to Phil for a second because he, he posted a video on Twitter of what he drank out of the Wanamaker Trophy. It was a $450 bottle of wine that a friend sent to him, a guy that owns the winery, sent it to him. And uh, Phil talked about what it was. And then uh, I'm sure 15 minutes later, everyone went and bought, bought up the last 15 cases of what that wine was. So uh, good for Phil for, you know, doing his friend a solid. But that, that made me think right. about you and uh, and the Claret Jug. So uh, we know everybody likes to drink their beverage of choice out of the trophies like that. So uh, what did Mark Kalkovecchia have out of the Claret Jug? <laughs> we were drinking some uh, uh, Dom Perignon out, out of it, by the way. Uh, and not just the uh, night we won, but uh, the night I had to bring it back at St. Andrews the next year. Uh, and I got a little bit of grief for that because the uh, invitation said 7.30 for 8. And I had no idea what that meant. So I just figured that means I'll show up at about five to eight. And uh, of course I got a lot of grief for that. And, uh, the, the, the Claret Jug still has some champagne dripping out of it. I, I didn't rinse it out quite good enough, but, uh, uh, yeah, we had a, we had a few tasty beverages out of that thing, but yeah, that wine Phil was drinking. I've never even heard of, but I'm sure it's good. It's 450 bucks a bottle or at least it better be. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> hey, Mark's. Speaking of lots of money, what are your thoughts on the tour's new $40 million incentive plan that's going to be distributed to the, you know, 10 players who bring the most eyes and clicks to, to the tour and not necessarily <laughs> the top players on the course, just who is generating eyes and clicks? Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I thought it was pretty ridiculous. 
uh, honestly, to give away that kind of money for a basically a popularity contest. Uh, you know, great for the guys getting the money. You know, I, I can't fault anybody for for whatever they do to make it a bunch of money, but it seems like uh, there's there's several places that that money. If you if you want to drop forty million, you could give a lot to the Corn Ferry Tour, a lot to the LPGA Tour, and uh, uh, even throw in some to extra to the Champions Tour. I mean, most of our purses are like you know one point six to one point eight million, which is great. I'm not complaining about that, but you know, it's always fun to play for, for more money. And, uh, yeah, but, you know, times are changing. I'll be 61 on Saturday and, uh, you know, my, my time's come and gone. And I'm sure, you know, when you, when you look where Jack Nicholas is on the career money list, you know, it's, it, I mean, people make more in two weeks now than he made in his whole career. So it, it's pretty, pretty scary when you look at it that way. Mark, I want to get your memories. Of uh, the Ryder Cup, some of the Ryder Cups you played in. I know you played in in the '91 Ryder Cup at the Ocean Course at Kiowa, back when it was a relatively new course. And as I was doing uh, some of the research for for our time, and then Chip X was a part of the show last week, I was reading a couple of articles about uh, you guys may not have been thrilled about playing the event there back then. What do you think about the course when you guys arrived and and started? you know, practicing and playing around and seeing what the conditions were like. I, I couldn't believe my eyeballs, quite honestly. Uh, I wanted to play a practice round there probably six weeks before the Ryder Cup or just to check it out. And every road was a dirt road. There was just nothing but piles of sand everywhere. There was, there was basically no clubhouse. They just started building it. And I thought to myself, how in the world are we going to have a Ryder Cup here with, you know, 50,000 fans out here uh, walking around this place? I, I just, it, it blew my mind. Uh, I wasn't even sure where I was going. It was just, a, like I said, a dirt road, a sand road for a bunch of mounds. Uh, you know, and then I played the course and it was, uh, it was pretty rugged. It was, it was definitely, uh, not as refined as it is now. Uh, Meaning, I, th- I think it was even harder back then because, you know, if you missed a green in a certain area, like behind 16 green on Sunday, I had a beautiful little six iron in there and it went just over the green. I was only 20 feet from the hole, but I was in a, a sand footprint. And, you know, I, I mean, now I looked I, when I watched the, right, or the PGA a few weeks ago, you know, there's nothing but grass back there now. So, uh, you know, it, it's a beautiful place. Uh, and I, I really, I really did kind of enjoy the course. Uh, it was a good course for me cause, because it's difficult around the greens. And that's why I think it was a good course for Phil. Uh, first of all, there's no trees he could hit, you know, which is a bonus for him. <laughs> and, uh, and the fairways are, are, are pretty wide there, which is another bonus for him. And it's super difficult around the greens, which is another uh, advantage for Phil. And, and I think that's kind of why I liked it as well because it's, uh, you know, if you miss a green, uh, short side yourself, you've got a big hump to chip over or bump it into or, or whatever you want to do. But, uh, I, I thought it was a great PGA and I thought they set up the course perfectly. Chip Beck talked about the bug issue that you guys dealt with there and in a, in a very positive way that, you know, Chip does, but talk about what the bug situation was like. Oh my God. It was, uh, we were on the range 
one morning, getting ready for a practice round. And, you know, Chip's the most positive guy of all time. Uh, and he, he says, well, let me go back to maybe a few years before that. Uh, at Hilton Head, there's a, before they built a new T-way back there, there's a tree right in the middle of the fairway at, at the corner of the dog leg. And Chip piped one right down the middle, and he was dead stymied right behind that tree. And he goes, you know what, Cal? That's a well-placed tree. You know? <laughs> I said, what? Are you, are you crazy? Uh, so anyway, so we're on the range at Kiowa, and we're getting eaten alive by no seams, uh, mosquitoes, uh, flies, you name it. There's more bugs out there flying around than you could take a stick at. We're all spraying all this bug spray all over our bodies. And uh, just says, you know what, boys? You got to love these bugs. They don't have bugs like this over there in Europe. You know, you just, <laughs> we all just looked at him like, okay, Chip. But that, that's Chip. He's, uh, he was so funny and, uh, the most positive guy probably that, that I've ever met, uh, in my, in my playing days. And Mark, you were there on the 1989 Ryder Cup team as well. And, and in both those Ryder Cup events, Seve and Paul Azinger weren't exactly happy with one another. Some gamesmanship going on there between them. And like I say, Chip talked a little bit about it last week. He talked about how Seve was coughing or clearing his uh, throat at times and their backswings. Were you aware of what was going on and what did you guys think about what was happening? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, Seve was Seve. I mean, he was as great as he was. Uh, you know, he had a little bit of game, gamesmanship in him. And, uh, and Paul Azinger is not going to take any of that. Uh, you know, whether he's clearing his throat at the wrong time or you know, my buddy Ken Green was playing with him at the Masters and, uh, Seve was attempting to take a drop left at 10 from something and Ken walked, he was in the right rough all the way across the fairway down the hill and Ken just said, no, you're not getting a drop. So Seve asked for another opinion and, uh, anyway, he ended up not getting a drop. So, but I mean, that's, you know, Seve used his, greatness as a player and personality to uh to try to get away with a few things at times and and he did that in the Ryder Cup a few times. Uh which, you know, that that's that's what he did. But uh he was certainly a tough competitor. I know Ken and I lost to him and Jose uh in eighty nine at the Belfry in in our best ball match the first at, the first day in the afternoon. And uh man, they got up and down from everywhere. Uh you, you when you think you're about to win a hole, uh no, no, he's going to get it up and down and or make a pot to tie you, and uh, that's just that's just the way he was. He was he was definitely a great competitor. Mark, this year's Ryder Cup is going to be at Whistling Straits, which is a a link style course. And, I, and ever since you know they got it, that got announced, I was sort of scratching my head. Like you would think that we would be picking golf courses that play to our advantage, right? A home course advantage kind of thing. Not giving a uh, a European team anything that looks familiar to them or what they're used to playing on. Does does it make sense that we're that we're playing this thing at Whistling Straits? Well, it, it, it's a super cool place, and I do like the course. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a little bit of a strange uh, a strange course for us to be playing on. Uh, I think. Uh, but you know what? Nowadays, I think. 
the home course advantage thing, the Europeans did a perfection uh, two years ago in uh, in Paris at that course. I don't know what it was called, but the fairways were super narrow and the rough was a foot deep. And uh, because they know we had a lot of guys that hit it far, but not too straight on occasion. And uh, uh, they just wore us out on that course because uh, they set the course up perfectly for them. I remember in 89 at the Belfry, I don't think they cut the greens on Saturday or Sunday. The greens were so slow on Sunday. And I, as I go back and I've watched the replays of Sunday at the Belfry in 89, nobody in our team could get the ball to the hole. And, uh, you know, they were just more used to slow greens. And it was, it was a great job by Sam Torrance to set the course up that way. Now, at, at, at Whistling Straits, there's really nothing Steve Stricker can do to set up the course to our advantage. The, the course is what it is. You know, I don't think he's going to make the rough very deep. Uh, you know, the greens will be just normal speed. So, uh, yeah, I don't think it was a great course selection, uh, for, to help out a U.S. team with, uh, the advantage that the captain has to set up the course the way he wants to. Mark, just a couple more before I let you go. And speaking of home course advantage, you won the Phoenix Open three times, and none of those victories were even close. I mean, you won by seven, five, and eight strokes. Talk about that event and why it brought out the best in you. Yeah, it sure did. I, I just uh, uh, I lived down in Ahwatukee, 45 minutes from the course. Uh, I, I played the course a decent amount, uh, you know, not during tournament week. And I just seemed to really uh, be able to read the greens well. And I've always said my, my short game was so good during that time that I could be aggressive and shoot for pins that a lot of guys were afraid to shoot at because if I missed it on the short side, I was confident that I could get it up and down. And I, I've just, I've always been kind of a home course player. You know, went in there three times and, and two Hondas when I stayed at home and, and almost a Doral when I stayed at home. Uh, I, there's something about home cooking and, and sleeping in your own bed that, 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 that suits me. So, uh, yeah, I love the, I love the mayhem of the tournament. You know, each year it's getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And, uh, even back in the years that I won, it was still pretty crazy and, uh, just a lot of fun. And I, I just really enjoyed the atmosphere of the tournament. Marcus, we thought the PGA championship players were able to use rangefinders during the tournament. Plus now, with some of the advances in technology, with these follow carts that you can put a little thing on your on your back belt clip, and it'll you know like the electric cart will follow you during the course of your round. If if I'm a caddy, am I getting a little nervous that maybe technology <laughs> could uh, run me out of a job three or four years down the road? Well, that's that's a good question. Uh, no, I, I think they're I think caddies are safe. Uh, I don't see carts following players around the course. Uh, you know, as far as the range finders, I don't have a problem with that because every single professional in the world, when he's out playing golf at his home course or any, wherever he's playing, has a range finder in his bag. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, we looked at the 150 bushes and, and, and guessed where the pin was. And that's how we learned how to, how to hit the ball the right distance. And I've had some friends say that even when I was young that I had the best distance control they, 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 they've ever seen. So, you know, you kind of learn how to do that. But now, 
you know, there's there's no there's no guesswork. Everybody uses a rangefinder, boom, okay, one eighty two to the hole. You don't care what the front is because you're out playing a, a by yourself or just practicing or whatever, and you fire your iron shot right at the hole. Uh, so, you know, I thought at the PGA when they could use rangefinders, you should either do one or the other. Just forget rangefinders and just stick with the yardage books like normal. Or if you're going to use a range finder, then you can't use your yardage book. Uh, because doing both, I think, actually slows down play even more. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens with that. But uh, I, I think yardage books and, uh, and and not using range finders are, are still going to be the way to go for uh, quite a while. Mark, like I mentioned, you're a wonderful follow on Twitter, as is your wife, Brenda. And uh, as I was combing down through your Twitter feed, you're a Flex Steel fan? Oh, yeah. I love Flex Steel. That's just the best. Patches up anything. <laughs> we, we patch our roof with it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's super cool. The tape and the spray. Yeah, it's great stuff. <laughs> Mark, let our listeners know how they could stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing and root hard for you as you make your way back to the Champions Tour, whether they're following you online or it's on social media. Oh, thanks, Chris. Yeah, and and uh, I'm I'm Mark at Mark Calc on Twitter, and uh, Brenda's at Brenda Calc, and she's she's even funnier than I am. So uh, actually, some of the stuff I come up with, I steal from her. So <laughs> <laughs> <That's great. laughs> I got to give her credit for that. Mark, you're so much fun. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. It's always a pleasure having you as part of the show. I hope you'll come back and join me again soon. Absolutely, Chris. Anytime. You got it. Thanks for having me. You bet. Take care, Mark. All the best to you, Brenda, and the rest of the family. Look forward to catching up soon. Sounds good. Thanks. See you, Mark. That's a great Mark Kalkovecchia. At Mark Kalk, C-A-L-C, on Twitter. Uh, he's a fantastic follow, and, uh, and he's a great guy, as you could hear through the course of this conversation and the uh, the other two times that he has been a part of this sh- uh, show. So. Rooting really hard for Mark's back to heal up and he can get back to feeling normal again and uh, probably way better than he has over the last several years with that back. I know I suffer from lower back pain, so uh, I'm sure not as bad as what Mark's was, but uh, so certainly understand the the, uh, the struggle. So rooting hard for him to get healthy and get back out on the champion store and getting to watch him. And then, like I say, following he and Brenda as uh, he gets along the way and uh, hopefully letting us all know how he's feeling and then posting some great stuff out there on Twitter. Before I get to my next guest, Jane Blaylock, I want to give a shout out to some more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Finn Cycles. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing Finn Cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Fin for a course that has them near you. I also want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Golf Pride. Did you know that Golf Pride lets you rep your favorite team while also using the number one grip in golf? Your team, your grip, MCC Hybrid Grips, the number one grip series worldwide. Features an exclusive brush cotton cord in the upper hand for all-weather performance with premium rubber in the lower hand for added feel. The new MCC Team Series is available in a variety of new color combinations, so you can rep your favorite team out on the course. 
Available in standard and midsize. Check it out online by going to golfpride.com. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. Okay, now next on the tee with me is one of the great legends in LPGA history, Jane Blaylock. Jane is from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. She played her college golf at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, just outside of Orlando where she graduated with her degree in history. She was inducted into their Hall of Fame in 1977. She won the New Hampshire Amateur Championship three times from 1965 to 1968. She won the Florida Intercollegiate Championship in 1966 and was the New England Amateur Champion in 1968. That same year, she won the Florida Intercollegiate Championship while at Rollins College. She turned pro in 1969 and was named the LPGA Rookie of the Year. She got her first win on tour here in Atlanta at the 1970 Lady Carling event. She was named the most improved golfer on the LPGA Tour in 1970 and 71. She won the inaugural Dinosaur Colgate Winner's Circle Tournament, which was the richest prize ever on the LPGA Tour at the time. She would go on to win the Colgate Triple Crown in 1975 and 77. She teamed with Raymond Floyd to win the Mixed Championship in 1978. She holds the professional golf record for most consecutive cuts made at 299. In 1983, she became only the seventh player in LPGA Tour history to earn a million dollars in career money. She was named the 1985 Comeback Player of the Year, coming back from a herniated disc in her back. In all, she won 27 times on the LPGA Tour and four times on the Japanese Tour. She was inducted into the Legends Hall of Fame back in 2014 into the New Hampshire Golf Hall of Fame in 2018, and I couldn't be more honored to have her with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hi, Jane. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks, Chris. Wow, I've been busy. You really have. You've had a heck of a career. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> well, thank you. That Jane, was a, a, a very generous introduction. Well, Jane, I want to start by going back to almost to the beginning of your career. Um, as I was doing the research, I read you started playing the game when you were 13. Where did the interest in golf come from? Well, it was, uh, and that I'd be an old lady today starting at 13, wouldn't I? <laughs> uh, yeah, I grew up, uh, as you mentioned, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, not exactly a hotbed for golf given the climate. Uh, a neighborhood with all boys, and so I played basketball and baseball and occasionally football with them. And so uh, when a new course opened up in town, the Portsmouth Country Club, uh, they all caddied. And so they convinced me to come with them. And uh, my parents didn't play golf, but uh, so I went with them to, you know, to, uh, well, I, I put golf bags on a cart and caddied. And then uh, the pro at the club, um, he had uh, like eight or nine kids. So he was obviously uh, cared a lot about junior golf and he started a junior program. So I joined with all the boys that I played other sports with and uh, just provided a great opportunity. So, Jane, how does a great junior golfer from the state of New Hampshire end up playing her college golf Rollins College outside of Orlando? <laughs> well, uh, my dad was a native of Florida. My father, he was a newspaper editor in, in Portsmouth. And he always believed that uh, to get a good education, it's, it's good to change geography. So. Uh, 
I, um, I, we had visited the Rollins campus and, uh, it was just, uh, you know, small school. They re- didn't even have a golf team, uh, to be quite honest. It was just a beautiful campus and, uh, was a place that I got accepted. So I went and, uh, when I was there, um, we actually kind of lobbied the, uh, the tennis coach to, uh, allow us to create a, um, a golf team. So we had to do some work and, uh, it was kind of an ad hoc golf team. We I mean, was, wasn't even close to the schedules they have today, but at least it gave a few of us a chance to play, uh, players like, uh, Hollis Stacy, Debbie Austin, Barbara McIntyre, who won, uh, many amateur tournaments in her day, Alice Dye. Uh, had gone to Rollins College, so people thought it was just this great golf school, which uh, it actually wasn't. It's just that a lot of wonderful golfers happened to have attended, and uh, so something that I'm proud of. And now, I mean, they have a you know they're a perennial Division Two winner, so um, it was just a, a it was a great education, to be quite honest. Jane, I lived in Winter Park for many years back in the '80s and the '90s. Where did you play your local golf around Orlando? Dubstred. <laughs> Do you remember Dubstred? Is that right? Club. Yeah. 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 Uh, it was, uh, oh, it, it, it was such fun. And, uh, one of my great joys in my life, um, we had a, um, a tournament, a couple of tournaments in Orlando area, one at Rio Pinar, which I won. And another one at, uh, let's, oh gosh, my just escaped me the name at North, um, North of Orlando, um, north of Winter Park. Um, uh, well, anyway, so I won two tournaments and a lot of my old college buddies who stayed in that area came out and it was just, uh, you know, one of the, well, two of the great victories that I, Errol Estate, that's, there we go, Errol Estate Country Club, um, north of Winter Park. And it was, it was such fun to win, uh, with that kind of hometown atmosphere and knowing that I had, uh, you know, such great roots in the uh, greater Orlando area. Winter Park is just one of the greatest towns in the world. Um, just uh, fabulous. Jane, you turned pro in 1969. You get your first win on tour in 1970. And of course, it's actually just a couple miles down the street from where I live now, Indian Hills Country Club at the Lady Carling Open. And you did it in grand fashion. You make a hole-in-one on the par 3 seventh hole in the <laughs> final round. What a day for you. Well, you know, and it, I was a very unlikely winner. You know, I, I did not grow up as one of the stars in golf. You know, you have this group, you know, junior golf. Now, we didn't have AJGA then, but junior golf and you play the national junior, you play amateur tournaments. I didn't have much of that, uh, you know, as a kid from New Hampshire. Um, so uh, it was actually through Bob Husky's tutoring. I had a job uh, cleaning clubs, picking up range balls and occasionally starting on the first tee at Ocean Reef Club. And he encouraged me. He said, well, go ahead and just try it. He said, you can, uh, you know, stick to what you know. You can chip and putt and just don't listen to other people. And uh, I remember playing that tournament in Atlanta. And, yes, I made a hole-in-one. It was with a four-wood, a real four-wood. I didn't see it go in. It was elevated green. And uh, it was, uh, I beat Betsy Rawls, you know, who was just such a wonderful human being and such a great champion. And I will never forget making, a, uh, of course, we never remember our victories. However, it was, I had an eight iron to the 18th green. It was three foot, uh, you know, right to left, severe breaking putt. And my heart's still beating even thinking about it. And, uh, you know, won my first tournament. 
And then you back it up the following year, right? You win, you win here again, this time by one stroke over Joanne Carner. Talk about what it was like battling it out against her. Oh, Big Mama. Well, anytime, anytime you can go head to head with Big Mama, come out on top, you're really fortunate. Uh, but that's kind of, you know, I mean, she hit the ball a lot farther than I did, certainly. But, um, you know, I, I actually recall, um, you know, playing with her and, uh, you know, she was hitting nine irons and I was hitting five irons. So, uh, um, a lot of pressure on that, but, uh, you know, just beating the best, it was something that was, uh, just such great satisfaction. You do that sort of similar thing again. 1972, you win the inaugural Colgate Dinosaur Winner Circle at Mission Hills Country Club and you did it by three strokes over. Carol Mann and Judy Rankin, a couple of LPGA <laughs> Hall of Famers. And it was by far what I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was the biggest purse on the LPGA Tour at that time. Maybe the maybe the biggest purse of all time on the LPGA oh, Tour. So oh, talk about true. winning that tournament. Oh, yeah. Oh, without question. Uh, the, the total purse was 100000 You know, I mean, that's, you know, minuscule by today's standards. But that time, I think the next largest purse was um there may have been a fifty thousand purse. Uh but most of them were twenty, twenty five thousand that time. And so now you have this tournament. You have Dinosaur's name attached to it. You've got all these real celebrities, you know, Bob Hope, uh Frank Sinatra, um, you know, all the great athletes, uh the A listers for sure. And national T V and it was just like the biggest thing and uh Colgate put many of us in their national commercials. So leading up to it, we were all on network TV doing, uh, I was worked with Madge, the manicurist. I'm dating myself with Colgate Palmala. Um, you know, Laura Ba, ultra bright girl, uh, Sally Little, uh, Judy Rankin. I mean, we all had our, you know, had our certain roles. So it was just, it wasn't just the prize money. It was the prestige and the hype. And it was the, the event that change the entire face of the LPGA. So I have to say uh, that winning that um, certainly um, it certainly uh, was a, you know, a notch in my belt, but uh, it was just so meaningful. And every time we go back there now, when I see, um, you know, you have the wall with all the champions. And uh, one thing that I don't can ever take my name away from being the first on the wall. So it's pretty, uh, yeah, it's um, it's a wonderful feeling, and uh, you know, just great thoughts. And Dinah was fantastic, and Colgate was wonderful in how they positioned uh, women's golf. And speaking of prestige, that that tournament is now a major on the LPGA tour. It became so in, back in '83. Shouldn't it be considered a major for you? Shouldn't they have retroed that back and given you credit for that? Well, I think there was some chatter about it, but who knows? Uh, because it could not have been more of a major in everyone's mind. But, uh, you know, it's and the unfortunate thing is at that time, we only had two majors. We had the U.S. Open and the LPGA Championship, and now they have, what, five? And so, right. uh, you know, certainly I'm not taking anything away from those that win a lot of majors, but it's a little bit more attainable now than it was then. But um, if they made it retroactive, uh, I would not refuse it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> with dinosaur's name attached to it did you get to know her because she was a huge star on radio and tv and obviously very important to the growth of the lpga tour back in the 70s and 80s 
Oh, absolutely. And yes, um, we all got to know her. I, I played a, um, a couple of the programs with her. I even played a practice round with her. She had a few of us over to her home. She actually um, had a home right at Mission Hills, um, right near the right, well, very close to um, to the golf course. And uh, she was just a special person. And uh, the reason, you know, Colgate selected her for a reason, because at that time you had the Bob Hope, you had an Andy Williams tournament. Um, let's see, you had, um, oh gosh, um, well, there were a few other celebrity events but nothing for women. And so um, they spent some time trying to decide, um, you know, who would be the, the spokesperson. And Dinah did not play golf. She was a tennis player. And they actually had to convince her. And, uh, I mean, just, you know, all the credit to her because she just didn't accept. She decided she was going to learn to play the game of golf. And she went at it just like she did learning to sing in her career. I mean, she was fantastic. And she could hit the ball and was never happy when she missed a shot, which she, which we all had much more respect for her because she was a real competitor. But uh, she loved her relationship with the LPGA. She loved her role with that tournament. And we all loved her. Later in 1972, you won the Dallas Civitan Open in a playoff over Kathy Whitworth. So now... You're really starting to rack up the impressive wins over the best of the best <laughs> in LPGA Tour history. Talk about going head-to-head against Kathy Whitworth. Well, I said just a moment ago, I do like going up against the best, and it uh, you know, it brings something out in you. You know, it's uh, maybe it's just that extra bit of adrenaline, the extra challenge. And, uh, yes, I, I remember that playoff well. I remember making, a, as I said, we never remember our victories, of course. But uh, making about was about a 15 foot downhill putt to beat her in that playoff, and uh, and she, I mean, talk about ultimate competitor. I mean, Joanne Carnage just wears it. Kathy just wears you down. Um, you really, it's uh, it's hard to know how she's playing, but every time you see her scorecard, it's in the 60s. Um, so you know, every time you could beat, I remember beating Rankin in the playoff, who was just, you know, she was such a great competitor, and it's so good what she does now, and beating Carner and Whitworth. Uh, of course, I'm sure they got me a few times as well, but uh, not in a playoff, to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> and you would go on to edge Kathy Whitworth a few more times that season. And then at that same event in 1976, though, that time you won by nine strokes. Did, did she ever pull you aside and say she was getting tired of finishing second to you? No, heaven, she'd never give me that credit. Absolutely not. <laughs> she, she'd lose her edge. Of course, she only won 82 tournaments. <laughs> she has, she has, she has me by a few. Uh, what I went 27. Actually, one time I had won 29. Um, Sandra Palmer and I won two team championships together. And, uh, we actually have, um, written to a couple of folks because now they, you know, they make those team championships official. So uh, we're hoping they're going to add a couple more tournaments to our resume. So we'll see what happens. But, uh, yeah, I don't think Kathy uh, ever really worried worried about me. But uh, I am proud of the fact that uh, I don't think she ever got me. <laughs> so that's, uh, <laughs> that's, 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 I, that's a good thing. Okay, just a, a few more before I let you go. But by 1977, you're rolling along pretty good in your career. You went three times in 77, four times in both 78 and 79. 
and you're dominating on the Florida courses. I mean, your peers had to know if the tournament was in Florida, <laughs> they were pretty much playing for second. <laughs> well, I, I have to attribute some of that to the fact that I, growing up in New Hampshire, I played at Portsmouth Country Club, which was uh, on the water, very windy golf course. So I was a, I was a low ball hitter. Um, if we ever hit over trees, it was uh, forget it. I'd have to go around them. Um, and so in Florida, obviously, there's a lot of wind. So anytime the wind blew, I felt I had an itch. Um, I was never great on Bermuda greens. I grew up on very fast bent greens. Um, and my ball striking was, was so good because of, uh, you know, play, the ability. I could, I had a two iron in my bag and I could, uh, I could actually drill a two iron. So, um, that certainly helped, uh, with some of those two and three club wind holes. So I think that's why, uh, Florida was very kind to me. What was life like for you off the course at that time in the late mid to late seventies? Because you're a pretty big star on the LPGA tour by seventy nine. Well, I always um I've always enjoyed myself. You know, I wasn't groomed to be a golfer. As I said, I did grow up in the ranks and um um I had such a great circle of friends. Um we um would go to ball games, you know, players today, uh, it's like they travel with their entourage. And we traveled with one another. So we had a great group that would, you know, go to concerts and go to, you know, if we were, I tried to go to every baseball stadium that if we played in Minneapolis, we played in New York, played in Chicago. And so we did things that kind of took the stress and the kind of the tediousness out of constant travel and just had fun. So I look back and I, I really, really thoroughly enjoyed my entire time. Uh, on the LPGA and, uh, you know, I left a little earlier than most because, um, I just felt that it was, um, I wanted to move on and do something else with, you know, with my life, like our, you know, our women's PGA golf clinics with our LPGA legends tour. So uh, I enjoyed the marketing, uh, side of golf and, and trying to make a difference for women. Jane, you mentioned the LPGA Legends Tour, and you were instrumental in getting that tour started. I'm partnering with Jane Geddes to help spotlight the great players like the two of you who play out on that tour. Talk about how you got it started. Well, it was a challenge. To me, it just uh, there was inequity in the fact that, uh, you know, the great uh, men of the PGA had a chance to continue their career. The fans had a chance to continue watching them, rooting for them. And uh, the women had nothing. And uh, the LPGA wasn't in the position of luxury that the PGA was. So we had to lobby really hard to convince the LPGA to allow us to exist, which they did barely. And then it was really, uh, it became, a, you know, just talk about a, a campaign and a crusade. Um, I was determined to um, to prove everyone wrong that people would come out to watch these great women on the, uh, you know, former stars of the LPGA. And our first tournament was in Green Bay, Wisconsin in 2000. 15,000 people a day showed up. So uh, we got everyone's attention. So, uh, you know, I think at our peak, we had uh, 12 events. Um, we through the, uh, through 2000, we were doing extremely well. And then uh, it's been a little, um, um, let's see, the pickings have been a little slimmer in the last few years, uh, but we're hoping to kind of get this thing really going again. 
Are you going to be playing at the U.S. Senior Women's Open next month up at uh, Brookline Country Club? Brookline Country Club. Uh, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> the, 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 the jury's out on that one, but we definitely will. Uh, we have a great um, team event on Cape Cod. BJ's, um, you know, Wholesale Club sponsors it. And we've got a fabulous field, you know, Laura Davies, Julie Inkster, um, I could go on and on, um, and it's well, it's who's who in women's golf, and the team events are really fun. It takes it's not just the pressure, but the camaraderie. So we're excited about that. I'm definitely playing in that one. Uh, my partner will be Patricia Manulabu, who also won the, uh, you know, the Craft Nabisco. Um, it's changed names so many times; it's hard to keep track of what the name was when she won it. But, um, I'll be playing in that, and we've got a great tournament in uh, Land Lake, the sponsoring event in Minneapolis. Of course, we have the um, you know Legends LPJ Legends uh, in French Lick. So um, we've got a few things going on this year. So um, I'll, I'll play in a couple of them, just kind of uh, making decisions of which ones to select outside of the BJs. Jane, before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing, and then follow you whether it's online or it's on social media well it's uh let's see um on our uh, pmg women's pga clinic with our our clinic program and it's uh the legends um so with those two websites and uh, and on twitter i'm at blaylock jane well, Jane, it has been a huge thrill having you as part of this show tonight. You're a lot of fun. I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. I'd love to, Chris. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me and chance to talk about the Legends Tour. Jane, stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. Okay, you bet. Thank you. That's a great Jane Blaylock. Folks, you want to talk about one of the legends of the LPGA Tour Someone instrumental for putting the LPGA Tour on the map. Boy, it's Jane Blaylock. I mean, those great with 27 wins, four times over on the on the uh, Japanese Tour. The great things that she did, getting the Legends Tour established. The great wins uh, that she had against some of the all-time greats on the LPGA Tour. What great stories! Certainly hope to have Jane back on the show again real soon. Before I get to my next guest, Jim McLean, I want to give a shout-out to a few of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment? Maybe a new driver? I'll tell you what, let me reset your thinking, because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented square toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour, an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent tests prove it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com and get Squares 30-day money-back guarantee. Use promo code DISTANCE for $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. And folks, I wouldn't tell you about it if I didn't experience it for myself. I've never felt more stable in my golf swing, which allows me to swing faster and launch it further. Squares, the distance golf shoe. I also want to give a shout out to another new sponsor, Bionic Gloves. Do what you do better with Bionic Gloves. Whether you're looking to own the golf greens, improve your workouts, or get your hands dirty in the garden, Bionic Gloves has you covered. Designed with a hand specialist, 
Bionic gloves feature patented innovations that help improve your grip. The strategically placed anatomical relief pads also prevent calluses and blisters, while the web and motion zones allow for greater dexterity and flexibility. Head over to BionicLoves.com to find the perfect glove to up your game. And I want to remind you about our friends over at Zexio. Back in 2001, Zexio Strixon began making clubs for men and women, and they've improved on those clubs every year since. I was fit for a set of Zexio 10 irons by a great fitter on their staff. He got me dialed in, and they feel and perform fantastically. They are light. I have picked up nearly 5 miles per hour in swing speed, and they're deadly accurate. Every part of Zexio clubs are made exclusively for Zexio. Like I say, everything is light and balanced. Swing weights are made to give us the highest smash factors. The best part of getting fit for Zexio clubs is hitting it higher and straighter than ever before, changing your game. Zexio clubs are a Golf Digest Hot List Gold winner for 2021. Congratulations to Zexio Ambassador N.B. Park for her five-stroke victory earlier this year at the Kia Classic. It was her 21st victory, and she did it using Zexio 11 Woods and X Irons. Ernie Ells and top instructor Martin Hall are Zexio ambassadors as well. See why and how Zexio can help improve your game. Go online to ZexioUSA.com. That's XXIOUSA.com and pick which set is right for you. Okay, now next on the tee with me is one of the top instructors in the history of the game, and that's Jim McLean. Jim is from Seattle, Washington, and won the Washington Junior Championship twice. He won the Pacific Northwest Amateur three times, and the Seattle Amateur and the Four States Amateur in Texarkana, Texas. Played his college golf at the University of Houston from 1969 to 1973, where he teamed with legends like Bruce Litsky, Bobby Watkins, Bill Rogers, Tom Jenkins, and John Mahaffey, and helped the Cougars win the 1970 National Championship at the Ohio Golf Club in Columbus, Ohio. Their team finished second in 1971, 72, and 73. His 41 career season rounds still has him ranked tied for 10th all-time at Houston. He finished 4th in the 1971 U.S. Amateur Championship. He was named an All-American in 1972, and he graduated with his degree in economics. Jim is one of the few players to qualify for the U.S. Juniors, the U.S. Amateur four times, U.S. Open twice, and the U.S. Senior Open. Jim played in the 1972 Masters as an amateur and made the cut, finishing tied for 43rd. He won the Northwest Open and is a three-time winner of the Pacific Northwest Amateur. Jim won the Pacific Coast Amateur Championship at the Olympic Club in San Francisco. As an instructor, he's won just about every award there is to win. He's been inducted into four Hall of Fames, including the World Golf Teachers Hall of Fame. His students include dozens and dozens of great players, including three that are very near and dear to my heart and a big part of this show, and Gary Player, Jane Geddes, and Hal Sutton. His instructional schools have certified over 400 teachers, and I'm honored to have him with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hi, Jim. Thanks for coming on the show. Hello. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Jim, I want to start by learning how you first got interested in playing golf, and when did you first pick up a club, and who put it in your hands? I grew up in Seattle. Uh, My dad was a really good player. He was an engineer for Boeing Aircraft. yeah, so we lived real close to, the, uh, to a golf course right across the street, and uh, he was right—you know—was right there. My mom and dad both played. So, Jim, how does a kid 
growing up and winning multiple junior golf championships, you know, in Seattle, in and around Seattle in the state of Washington, end up playing his college golf at the University of Houston? Well, actually, Coach uh, Dave Williams, who um, was was our coach, who, who won 17 NCAs in Houston, I, I, uh, I think to a record. Um, he he recruited pretty good out in the in the Northwest. You know, right after, uh, well, not right after me, but not too long after me, he recruited uh, Freddie Couples. Uh, there was a lot of other really good players that he got from the Northwest. So he kind of, uh, well, he was a great recruiter. He recruit, recruited across the United States, which uh, most coaches weren't doing at that time. And Jim, like I mentioned in your intro, uh, your Cougars teams had several great players that would go on to you know become some of the best in the world, including yourself. But talk about teaming with Litsky and Watkins, Rogers, Jenkins, Mahaffey. What was it like playing with those guys? Yeah, well, you know, we had 40 guys live the, uh, at the athletic dorm in Houston, and uh, it was very competitive. There were some really top players that didn't really get to play too much or any. But, uh, yeah, I lived with uh, Bill Rogers and Plitsky and John Mahaffey. Mahaffey won the PGA. Uh, Bill Rogers won the British Open. Fuzzy Zeller was school with us, too. He won the Masters in the U.S. Open. And Bruce Litsky won the United States Senior Open and had a great career on the PGA Tour. He won 14 times out there. So, you know, I was uh, really around really great players that I uh, played with every day, and they remain my really good friends forever. Um, Bruce Litsky passed away a couple of years ago with a uh, brain cancer, a terrible thing, but uh, yeah, we, we've, we've got, we have some great guys there that I'm still really good friends with. And did you get to be a part of any of those majors? You, you mentioned you know, Mahaffey and the 78 PGA and, and Bill Rogers with the 81 Open Championship and uh, obviously Bruce with the, the U.S. Senior Open that you mentioned. Did you get to be a part of those with those guys? Well, um, not really. I, uh, Bill Rogers came to our house the night after he won the British Open. He flew back to New York. I was in New York for 19 years as a uh, club professional. Um, and, you know, we had a great night there. I also, with, when Tom Kite won the U.S. Open, I had dinner just with uh, Ben Crenshaw and Tom uh, right after he won. So that's sort of, you know, I've been at, I was with um, Keegan Bradley when he won the, at Atlanta for the PGA. But no, you know, I wasn't playing in the tournament. Uh, just uh, those were special nights, though, especially with Bill Rogers that's right after he won. And I, I'd wor- been working with Tom Kite all the year that he, won the uh, U.S. Open, so a really neat night, because I played with Crenshaw and Kite, my whole, you know, all my junior and amateur golf. I had Mark Kalkovecchia on a little earlier tonight, Jim, and we were talking about, uh, you know, Phil drinking the $450 bottle of wine from the Wanamaker <laughs> Trophy. We talked about Mark drinking the Dom Perignon from the, from the Claret Jug. I got to imagine when Bill came back with the Claret Jug, you might have had uh, a drink or two from it. Um, what was that like? <laughs> Well, yeah, <laughs> Bill didn't have it with him uh, when he came back. Uh, you know, we had dinner that night, but he didn't he didn't have it with him. And uh, when Kai came to New York, he he went at Pebble Beach and he flew back uh, on Monday. And we had dinner Monday night in New York. Uh, and he also didn't have the uh, U.S. Open uh, trophy. So no, we didn't get. I, no, I didn't get drinks. I I I've lifted those trophies. I lifted the one with uh, Keegan Bradley up in. Jupiter after he won, but uh, no, didn't really do the uh, Don Perignon myself, you know. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, Jim, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, as I was doing research on you later on in your career, some of your college teammates and Watkins and Mahaffey is what I saw most frequently actually became students of yours, right? Didn't you end up helping them uh, throughout their careers? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, back in in those days, we, we helped each other, you know, so I wouldn't, you know, yeah, I would videotape their swing, look at their swings, talk to them about things. Bill Rogers was pretty much self-taught. Um, yeah, I, I worked with Mahaffey, though, quite a bit on the short game. Bobby Watkins was a huge practicer. Yeah, he came down I, when I was, I was at Doral for 27 years. Uh, Drow Resort. We had the tour event there for 26 of the years that I was there. And, um, yeah, Lan uh, Bobby just, well, I knew Lanny real. I played a lot with Lanny, but Bobby was at school with me at Houston. And then what he would come down and he would hit balls like, uh, VJ Singh or, you know, Ben Hogan, or, you know, the greatest practices of all time. And he, he would, uh, smoke cigarettes and drink Pepsis and he'd have about 400, uh, butts out on the, uh, range and, and 25 Pepsis by the end of the day and a huge amount of grass he'd taken out of the range. But yeah, I would obviously go over and talk to him and he was very interested in, in uh, you know, learning about stuff, but it was mostly just adjustments and not, I wouldn't say any kind of major overhauls for any of those guys. And you work with so many legends of the game. And like I mentioned in your intro, three are very near and dear to my heart because they've been wonderful guests on this show over the years. And that's, Gary Player, Hal Sutton, and Jane Geddes. Talk about yeah. working with those three. Well, you know, uh, Gary played in the, I had the senior tour event at, at uh, Sleepy Hollow in New York, and he loved coming down. I had all this uh, Hogan video, so he just absolutely ate that up, and he would come down to my uh, golf center. We call it the Super Station, the first one really there. And, uh, yeah, he would, he just sit for hours and would go over the video and talk about what he was doing in the swing. I worked quite a bit with Hal Sutton. Uh, I, one of the best things I did with Hal's, we flew down to Houston, uh, to see Jackie Burke and they developed a very good friendship. Uh, they're still great friends to this day. And, uh, uh, Jackie helped him quite a bit with his short game and, and his mental game. Jackie, uh, Burke, you know, is a master's champion and a PGA champion and just a tremendous mentor in my life just one of the greatest people i've ever met in my life but uh yeah I, I played played quite a bit with hal too and jim you taught christy kerr who was ranked number one in the world back in 2010 lexi thompson who very nearly just won the u.s open and eric compton who's a two-time heart transplant survivor and finished second at the 2014 u.s open you taught them all as junior players talk about your experience with them yeah, well, you know, you get lucky sometimes where the, some really dedicated young juniors with a lot of talent grow up near you. And I was fortunate to first with Christy, she, she became the number one junior and the number one amateur in the United States at the same time when she was 17. And Lexi did it when she was 14. She was the number one junior and the number one amateur and, and made the Curtis Cup team when she was 14. Um, just, just uh, both of them just phenomenal, uh, talented players who really worked hard. And then of all, you know, the, some of the greatest people ever in my, my life would be Eric Compton, who started with the, when he was 12 years old, my golf school, but he just had his first heart transplant. They didn't really think he'd play any sports. And, and then he became the number one ranked junior in the United States and, and played at Georgia. And, 
Then he had another heart transplant and came back from there and uh, was runner-up in the United States Open. So he's had some nice starts on the PGA Tour. He's won on the Corn Ferry Tour, won in Europe. I mean, he didn't have a monster um, PGA Tour career, but he takes a lot of medication every day. He has a lot of things that he has to overcome. There's been really nobody that's had that kind of uh, those kind of transplants that have, has gone on to play sports in anywhere. And uh, he's just an amazing guy. He goes to a lot of hospitals. He helps a lot of people in the transplant world. And, you know, visits hospitals. He's just a phenomenal person. No, I just love the guy. Jim, more recently on the PGA Tour, you've worked with 2011 PGA champion Keegan Bradley, which you mentioned a little bit ago, 2019 U.S. Open champion Gary Woodland, plus Russell Henley and Bo Hogue. Talk about the work you're doing with them. Well, we're really fun with uh, Bo. has been a really good player at Ohio State. I was playing um, the Canadian Tour and then the Hooters Tour down here, the mini tour in Florida. And, uh, you know, he kind of come to a dead end he felt like and we started about four years ago working on his game and he got he, he ended up uh, making it to the web dot and then he became the corn fairy tour and he uh, ended up winning a corn fairy tour and getting on the pga tour and last year he made the top 125 and this year he had just had a nice tournament at Muirfield. he finished 13th last week so there's you know those have been fun ones for me because you know, somebody that needed some help, I felt like that uh, I really could kind of push them and get them over the edge to get onto the PGA Tour. Actually, I think the same thing with Keegan. We came out of college out of New York, St. John's, not exactly a powerhouse golf school, but, you know, I those guys were really hungry for information and knowledge and ideas on the short game, pitching the, the ball. Um, um Bo had a lot of face rotation going through uh, the golf ball. We worked a lot on well, left side drills and uh, swinging the club more back to the inside better. And he used to have a big drop to the inside uh, on his downswing that put him too far under the plane. So those are really things to work on. Uh, there was a lot of fun. Keegan, we did quite a bit of work too. And when he came to me, he said he wanted to play the PGA Tour. And uh, he said, I wanted, I need to change my swing. So I just made some pretty big changes and uh, amazingly it worked. So it's great that, you know, seeing him go on to be a Ryder Cup player, a President's Cup team member, and a major champion. Jim, you've written several books, uh, including The X Factor Swing. Talk about what The X Factor is and how it can help us gain distance and accuracy off the tee. Yeah, well, I, you know, I wrote that book. I, I first wrote a, a, a cover piece article it became for Golf Magazine, and then I ended up writing. It was the number one all-time cover that they had, and then I did two more covers, and then it, then it became kind of a big topic. And I was doing a lot of speaking at the, at that time in, in Europe and Australia, New Zealand. Japan and a lot of places, and that was topic number one that people wanted to discuss. And what it was was looking at the rotations of how the the knees turned, how the hips turned, how the shoulders turned, and how the head turned golf swing. But the X factor, which was the first article, was just isolating on what the shoulders and the the relationship between the shoulders and the hips in the in the golf swing. 
and that the shoulders outturn the hips, which is not so not a revelation there, but how much and then the hips start before the shoulders and increase the differential or, or the X factor. You increase the X factor when you start down. Tour players do. Yeah, good players do. People that hit the ball a long ways do that. And there's a lot of people that make an inefficient turn by maybe turning their hips and their shoulders in tandem or more together in the back swing, and they don't get that stretch. Um, but the X factor was not about not turning your hips. I, I had the corridor between 40 and 65 degrees, which, you know, I wrote that book a long time ago, and now there's been, uh, you know, biomechanics and a lot more study on the, these rotations in the swing and developing power. Of course, power is such a huge topic right now with Bryson DeChambeau and uh, Kepka and, and, and Dustin Johnson, et cetera, and Lexi Thompson. Um, but I think um, it was a great study for me. I really dealt, I loved studying the video. Uh, we had biomechanics probably before anybody in the 1990s at Doral. Um, we had used force plates a long time ago, but I, I loved doing that and looking at uh, how the great players, you know, of all time, Hogan talked about the hips turning 45 and the shoulders 90, which got my attention. But I found out that that was just kind of a basic number. There are a lot of guys. John Daly was the longest back when I did that study, and he was turning his hips 66 degrees and his uh, shoulders 118 degrees when we put him on a machine down at Doral. Uh, a, a good friend of mine, Michael McTague from uh, San Francisco, brought out a uh, an early version of, you know, biomechanics to measure these rotations. And it's pretty good. And, and that, that came out very interesting. I think it's held up, you know, really nicely. Jim, I want to talk about your golf schools because you've certified over 400 teachers. Talk about your schools and the way you're able to give back to the game in that way. Well, when I was in New York, we were in the Met section. It was a, I think, you know, if not the best section, certainly one of one of the best. We had a very big section there, and I was able to be the head professional at some really nice places. So when I came down to uh, Miami, uh, I brought you know some really talented people with me. We didn't we started small, just uh, five teachers at at uh, Doral, but you know it it blossomed out, and I have been really big on training. Uh, so we've had Monday morning meetings since we started, and Thursday night meetings and very serious tests on a lot of different books. Um, so I've loved uh, hiring good people and then we do a lot of training and then we, they have, uh, 13 videos they have to do on every part of the golf swing and they have to be able to speak well in front of people and have a deep knowledge in, in, in teaching. So we're really, you know, for a long time, we've been able to kind of have the pick of a of a lot of top guys who want to come down and really and really try to be a top teacher. So a lot of our guys are really at the are guys that have, you know, trained with us are really at some of the greatest places in the United States right now as the director of golf or the director of instruction. And I am really uh, very proud of those guys. That's been and girls and girls uh that have, have really succeeded in in this uh basically the teaching game. And Jim, you've got an app that's just about to be released, right? Yeah, yeah, it's just coming out right now. Uh, we just sent out a mailing today. Uh, I'll be starting to uh, 
you know, promote them. Well, thanks for mentioning it, but we've got PXG as a sponsor and Squares Golf Shoes that have been really good uh, as we get started here. And, um, you know, we've got a huge mailing list of people that we've worked with and at my different schools, so I think we've got a good chance. It's only four ninety nine a month, so I've got we tire winter doing a lot of brand new videos. Um, my son played at Oklahoma State, uh, playing the team with Ricky Fowler and Kevin Tway and some other great players there. Peter Uline, um, he's he's been helping me a lot. Uh, he played for eight years, but he's been working with me now. And um, Grayson Zacker is my director of instruction. We spent a tremendous amount of time on on brand new content, and uh, you know I think we've got a. a you know, they say content's king, so we'll we'll see. I think anybody that gets the this app's gonna be pretty happy with what they see in there. And Jim Squares Golf is uh, one of our sponsors as well. Oh, good. and uh, I've been singing I the praises of those shoes for a while. Um, yeah. Talk about the impact that the, that you've seen from the Squares Golf shoes. Yeah, I uh, it's been you know about a month with them, and uh, we, I've had the shoes on. I really like them a lot. Um, uh, I, I'm, you know, the, the forces in the golf swing, the rotational force, the lateral motion and the vertical forces are key to how you can improve whatever your power potential is. Everybody's different, of course, but it puts the weight in the correct spot in your feet. It has a wider toe. I don't, I'm just preaching to the choir with you. You know all this, but when, instead of squeezing your toes together, just like if you took your hands, your hand and squeezed your fingers together, it creates tension. Doesn't really allow your your toes to spread out. I really like that part. I like the, every great teacher and great player. I I had 30 years with Ken Venturi, who was also a, a U.S. Open champion and you know phenomenal ball striker, and a, he was a protege of Byron Nelson and and uh, Hogan and Jackie Burke. You know these guys are really great players. Claude Harmon in New York. They all talk about the weight being from the balls of the feet back to the heels, never on the toes. So the, the shoes help you do that. And, uh, you know, I think it's every little thing you can do nowadays to, you know, help your power potential. It's just such a huge part of modern golf. Jim, just one more before I let you go. And I, I got to get a story from you because uh, okay. I read that you had an interesting experience in 1977 at Q School at Pinehurst. Do you mind sharing that story? <laughs> That's a long story, but I, long story short, I, I got arrested for speeding and I was a young guy, you know, with New York plates down there at the time. It wasn't a great move. I smarted off to the one police and they threw me in jail and then I smarted off to the other guy and then I was really in trouble because, you know, I, I had a, uh, a, a radar detector on my car and the guy just estimated what I was doing. Anyway, beginning of tour school, so I spent the, most of the night in jail, and I was staying with the director of golf there at Pinehurst. I had everything set up. I was playing really good, but uh, that was a, put a pretty big damper on my first round. I shot 77 the first day and, you know, ended up missing that tour school. But, you know, just one of those things that crazy things you do when you're young. Kind of finished me <laughs> off right there. <laughs> I could go on and on. There's a lot to the story, but that's the basics. That's the basics right there. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, I got to get a playing lesson from you. Um, more from the mental side of the game. 
As, uh, as I look ahead to my uh, annual uh, uh, buddies trip, we're playing up at Macklemore coming up later this week. Um, mm-hmm. But from a mental side, you know, when you when we hit a bad shot, or maybe we have a bad hole or a couple of bad holes, when you're talking to you know your prospective teachers or the people in your schools or your students, how do you t- tell them to sort of manage their mental side and not let one bad hole or two bad holes turn into a bad round? Yeah, that's that's such a big part of the game. Um, being able to recenter yourself, to have a short memory, to uh, not magnify mistakes. You know, when you when you hit a bad shot, follow it up with a few more bad shots or bad uh, management decisions, and have a really big number. It's it's very frustrating, and then a lot of times because you get sort of disoriented or angry, you have you follow that up with a few more bad holes and and it's all over for the day. So, you know, if you can write the ship fast, that's great. But some days, you know, some days you just don't have it. So I would just ease off the pedal a little bit, swing a little smoother, uh, concentrate on hanging in the center of the club face, try to have big picture ideas, try to go to a nice finish, make sure you check your, your grip pressures, you know, that's squeezing that golf club after you've had a bad hole or a one bad shot. And, you know, golf doesn't, you know, doesn't look kindly on, on, uh, pressure in the body and, and tension. And, or, you know, our big saying at the golf school is tension kills the golf swing. And that's really a true statement. Jim, before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they follow all the great things that you're doing, whether it's on your website or it's on social media. Yeah, just McLean Golf on Instagram or Twitter, but just, JimMcLean.com, pretty easy. And uh, it's just the Jim McLean uh, Golf School app. They're interested in going to the app store to uh, check that app out and see what they think. It's free to go on and look at it. Well, Jim, it certainly has been a privilege having you as part of the show tonight. I hope you'll come back and join me sometime. So much more to get into with you. I'd love to get more playing lessons and talk more about your career, but uh, you're a legend and you're fantastic. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, best of luck to you. I hope to see you down the road. Thank you, Jim. Stay safe. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up soon. That is the great Jim McLean. And folks, what an amazing career, college career, and then as an instructor. I mean, the, the list of legends that Jim has had as students is long and distinguished. And like I say, right at the top of that list, obviously for us, it's Gary Player, Jane Geddes, and, and Hal Sutton. And then the over 400 teachers that he has certified through his schools is absolutely mind-boggling. So kudos to Jim. Uh, huge thrill having him as part of the show, and uh, we will certainly try to get him back on again soon. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My thanks go out to Mark Kalkovecchia. Jane Blaylock and Jim McLean for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. And speaking of which, scheduled to join me next week are our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. He'll be back just like he is every other week. The tournament director at the Travelers Championship, Nathan Grube, will be making his third annual visit with us. Also back with me will be 1989 senior PGA champion Larry Mowry. 
And joining me as well is going to be my co-host from the Thursday Night Tailgate Show, Bob Lazari. Bob typically joins me a couple of times during the golf season and particularly around the Travelers Championship because he covers that event every year up there in Connecticut. So it'll be great having Bob as part of the show next week as well. So it's going to be a great one. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. Folks, you can stream this show as a podcast on so many great podcasting sites and apps like Podcast.co, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Audioboom, Player.fm, and Odyssey. And folks, if there is a podcasting app and you're not sure if we're on it, just type in the name of the show next on the T in the search bar. We're probably on there as well. And folks, if you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor and go online to podcastmagazine.com and vote for the show in their Hot 50 list. You have moved us up from number 44 a couple of months ago to 39 and now up to 31 in June. I can't thank you enough for, for all of your support. Like to get the show into the top 25. So if you go on podcastmagazine.com and then you'll see a tab for Hot 50, click on that and then there'll be a drop down list for Hot 50 voting and then type in the name of the show and then my name in the host area. I really appreciate your support so much. Folks, thank you again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. I really appreciate the fact that you continue to make Next on the Tee a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.